everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. This is episode number 98, a field guide to 1989. There we go. Matt Noakes. Um, I am Gabe Estel, and I'm here with Levi Love Is All Around You Leech and Jonathan Gigolo, huh? <laughs> Sucker? Gets? How you doing, boys? <laughs> great now i think you see where i'm going with that yeah yeah so again as i mentioned this is a field guide to 1989 so glad everybody could be with us i'm gonna kick it right off most remember the 1989 world series for the earthquake at the start of game three and subsequent 10-day delay but some may forget this was the only year the would-be oakland a's dynasty was able to seal the deal Sandwiched between the World Series defeats in 1988 and 1990, Oakland's 89 team completely dominated its Bay Area rivals, the San Francisco Giants, with a four-game sweep, earning Oakland their first championship since the 1970s dynasty. While these ace teams are most remembered for the Bash brothers, Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, it was the contributions of an electric rotation that included Dave Stewart, Mike Moore, and Bob Welch that put, helped put it over the top. In music, now, a decade of hairspray came to a close, while groundbreaking releases from newcomers and veterans alike shook up the landscape. From Nirvana's Bleach and Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine to the Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique and Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever, 1989 was absolutely packed with blockbusters, who is, whose influence still resonates 30 years later. But just as impactful as a debut from Nirvana, another debut came in the trading card industry. You all know what we're talking about. The beautiful 1989 Upper Deck baseball cards. All right. There we go. And there's 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 the quintessential one right there. Ken Griffey Jr. For those of you who Do aren't, I take it out of the case? Just remove yeah. the glare? Gosh. For the, oh, yeah. It's dangerous. For those of you who aren't watching, uh, Jonathan's holding up the you just Ken Griffey Jr. You just PSA grades by the way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> no, putting it back in docks at another two. Right, right. The no, 1989 yeah. uh, beautiful Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. Uh, he just looks like a baby there, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, it was revolutionary on a lot of different aspects. A, because it was the first time a company had tried to implement some kind of anti-counterfeiting with mm-hmm. the holograms on the backs of the card. Right. And then um, it... Also, it was ballsy for a company who had never made cards before to put an unknown rookie as the number one card in the set. Because usually that card is reserved for, like, you know, known Hall of Famers or, like... It would have been, like, Conseco or something. Or, or like, established superstars. Yeah. 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 All all he had done was have um, 61 at-bats at double-A Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. And they're like, you know, you're going to be the face of our of our company basically and um to put it into perspective 1989 upper deck was a dollar a pack yeah which was at the time unheard of people were like that's effing absurd because a pack of tops was 45 cents yeah yeah and so you know people were like kids aren't gonna spend double the money or you know what i mean and it ended up they changed the game forever, basically. The, you know what I mean? It was the the absolute like start of the baseball just boom that happened that mm-hmm. changed baseball cards forever, better or worse. Mm-hmm. They were they were you know the higher quality of paper, you know, um, 
for sure. What they were printed on. The gloss, yeah. Glossy, yeah. Um, and just a real... You got two photos per car, which in yeah. a pre-internet age, it was like, that. as a baseball fan, you were like, yes, I want to see more of the, the player I like. You know what I right, mean? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. The beautiful photos on the back as well. Photography was good. The design. I remember our cousin Justin... Uh, uh, Levi, yeah. he was the first person to show me an upper deck, and the and the shit just blew my mind. You know, <laughs> like he was like, I hadn't even heard of it. You know, I mean, I yeah, yeah. he's like, yeah, there's these new cards called Upper Deck. Look at these, they're so nice. You know, and he was really, you know, Vanna White and them up. You know, like look at this. You know, and I was like, look at that, yeah, and sure enough, man. Pack, yeah, I was which hooked, was man. state of the art at the time because it was oh, yeah. tamper proof. Yeah, everything about oh, the right. aesthetics. Yeah. Like Levi said, you know, security enhanced, um, and and just it was uh, baseball cards like got on put on a tuxedo. You know what I mean when the upper decks well, came and, came mean, around. They, they, it, it had gotten to that point to where they had to do something mm-hmm. because guys who owned hobby shops would get boxes of tops, gently open them up, take out the good cards, put in a few filler cards. Then take an iron and reseal the pack because it was just wax, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hence wax the term wax packs. Yeah. And Guys, so, jump back for a second. Donruss did that too, but were scores like wax packs as well? Sorry, the scores they were, they were the cellophane, like the real thin yeah. cellophane. Yeah, cellophane. Okay, all right. Okay, sorry, I cut you off. Yeah. No, no. What What's crazy now in today's money? You can buy a box of 1989 tops for about ten to fifteen dollars. Right. Sure. A box of 1989 upper deck low series still goes for eighty to a hundred hmm. bucks. Yeah. What's the Griffey worth now? Because I remember it it approaching probably. Did it get to like when we were collecting like a hundred dollars? Did it get? Yeah, there? I want to say it was a hundred bucks. At, yeah, at yeah, one yeah point that's what I remember. Right. Yeah, maybe one twenty. I mean, it's spotty. You know, it's like anything on the internet. I, I think I got one probably like seven, eight years ago for around twelve dollars. Right. But like, I had kind of like sniped it. So I mean, I, I think you can still probably buy them for like twenty, twenty-five bucks. I, I don't. I never. I never had one. I didn't really? have it. I don't have it. Oh, yeah. Really? I was looking through my upper decks uh, for this episode. And um, I had some of the iconic ones from that year, but not as many as I would like. Like, I, I had the um, the Nolan Ryan when he was still on the Astros, and it's the 3D one. Or, like, not oh, the yeah, 3Ds, yeah. it's like the... the yeah, the tri-photo uh, thing. Yeah, right, right. right. Yeah. Which Upper Deck started doing more and more of those. Um, I can't remember if yeah. the Ricky Henderson one was that year or the next year. I think it might have been, I think it might have been the, the following season. But, yeah, yeah think, so... Yeah, Ricky Henderson might have been 91. Yeah, that was the best looking upper deck I think I owned uh, from the '89 set. Uh, I've got Conseco from '89 as well. Um, so yeah, it was. It's just they're, they're just gorgeous cards, and, and like Levi mentioned, you know, they changed the game, and and we've talked about it on this podcast before, and I could go on all night about it, but it it, it marked the the apex of baseball card collecting, but also essentially the start of its demise. Too, right. You know? It was like the beginning of the end, basically. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. You so know, I mean, you flooded the market with all these, you know, glossy cards like Pinnacle and Leaf and yeah. and Fleer Ultra. Two fifty a pack. 
yeah. yeah, stadium yeah, club. That was, no. that was the sad part was other companies realized like, oh my God, kids are willing to pay a dollar a pack and more. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it got way out of hand way quick. And uh, what's crazy is one of the things that I will occasionally do is buy a box of like 90 or 91 upper deck. Because they had those cards in them where they were autographed by Nolan Ryan or Hank Aaron. Oh yeah, and they're they're numbered to twenty five hundred. So there were twenty five hundred of those cards made. Yeah. But when you take into account that there were like eight hundred thousand of each card in the set made or something, like the odds of pulling them is just crazy. And then especially when you consider they were doing the high, the low series, high series. Well, the high series boxes, you even run your ratio, you know, your odds get even lower because the high series have the extra hundred cards at the end of the set in it. Right. To, so, like, the odds of pulling those those inserts, I know this isn't related to 1989 specifically, but those upper deck autographed inserts for, like, the Nolan Ryan and the Reggie Jackson and the Hank Aaron that they did, right. those still get, like, 200 bucks and up. Wow. Which is wow. crazy. Yeah. So it looks like on eBay right now you can get the um, you can get a graded mint Griffey Junior for a hundred bucks. Um, you can get an ungraded version for thirty. Yeah, I was gonna say I thought around twenty twenty five bucks. Yeah, but... yeah. Um, so Levi, I have a question about this uh, Gary Sheffield that I have here. Um, yeah, it looks like the SS. This was a good looking card. The SS on yep. shortstop is upside down. Is upside down. That's the ah. error card. <laughs> oh, so so are there both nice. versions, right side up and upside yeah, down? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the pricing difference is, but yeah, that was one of the error cards in the set. Huh. Nice. Yeah, I I, I don't recall any also, errors in the set. It was the uh, the first introduction we all got to V Wells. Vernon Wells Sr., the dad of Vernon Wells from the Blue Jays. And so he is a prolific baseball and sports artist. He did oh. all the team checklists. And so all the team yeah. checklists for like 89, 90, 91, maybe right. even 92. They're all V. Wells art like that. He also did the like 1990 hockey team checklist. He did... um he did like the first two years of upper deck football, which I think was like 91 and 92. And this is Vernon Wells' old man. No kidding. Correct. Wow. The, the ball player's yeah. old man. Wow. Correct. Wow. No kidding. I had no idea. I, I remember the V Wells, you know, and I, I now that the checklist, I, mean, I was just looking at it, found an Eric Davis one last night. Um, They're which, gorgeous. Cards, oh, they're beautiful. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I had no yeah, idea. I, did, I never yeah. knew that was Vernon Wells' dad. Wow. And so, yeah, he's still around making art. And um, he does a thing each year where he makes a painting of the uh, MVPs for each season. Sure. Nice. And it, it'll be like both of them on the same painting. And cool. usually whichever one sees it first ends up buying it from him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. They, they had a picture of Mike Trout holding the one where it was the year it was Clayton Kershaw and Mike Trout MVPs. Mm. Nice. Yeah, his paintings go from like, Six thousand to twenty grand. Wow! <laughs> for, nice. an, for an original, yeah, good for him. Um, 
Well, you know what, guys? Speaking of, it, obviously, 1989 Upper Deck uh, is the big story of, oh, yeah. of the year in cards. But um, I thought the it was a really sets good. were no slouches. I know. They weren't at all. Um, and I, I think the top set that year is really strong. Oh, yeah. um, it's it's, one it's of probably the, next one to of the 80, better looking sets. Mm-hmm. Next yeah. to 87 with the wood, it's 89 is mm-hmm. my second favorite set. Those and Jonathan was talking about. Fresh, buddy. Those are like glossy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They've yeah. been in my binder. Jonathan had mentioned um, the. Uh, uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. The the Gary Sheffield upper deck, or he just showed you that one. This one, I also think this is one of the best cards of someone that's wearing braces as well. <laughs> um, yes, so, Top, so yeah. tops could have sued like every little league photographer after that because I right. think they used that same future star thing on the tops of all of our cards. <laughs> I think I have a card where I'm like holding a bat and it says future star like yeah. that at the top. So yeah, that's uh this is a good looking card. I, I you know what I you know what future star I didn't have? I, I would say that the quintessential tops card of that year, this is definitely a runner up, but uh I don't have the Greg Jeffries. Do you guys have the Greg Jeffries? No. Oh uh no. I remember that one. Yeah. That one was a big deal. That one was like right. on the cover of the packs and right. yeah, he's right. uh he's doing that weird like haunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, yeah. like like he's ready for a, yeah. As know, a Cubs out. fan, like the the Mark Grace card and the Ryan Sandberg card are just beautiful. Oh yeah, and uh, the Grace is where he's Mark, got his back turned, and he's kind of like Grace has his back turned. And then a unique thing about that card is his jersey is number fifty three in that card, hmm. which I don't know if like that was his number like the first week in town or right? what. But yeah, he's like, man, like spring training photo. Yeah, he, yeah, he was he was always time. seventeen after that. Yeah, because they take a lot of these photos during spring training, right? Yeah, right. yeah. don't they? Yeah. yeah. So the the yeah. thing I really liked about this uh, Danny Tartable one is that he didn't want to pull his hat all the way down to <laughs> uh, to mess with the quaff bef- uh, just during batting yeah. practice. Uh, so. Nice. <laughs> Very good one here too of uh, like Harold Reynolds because a lot of the guys aren't posing in the in the photos you know oh, nice. uh, some are but yeah Harold Reynolds kind of a you know it's kind of like hey all right you know <laughs> hey you got me there hey Levi, he's I, like I, checking actually, out some chicks in the parking lot or something yeah I, I guess yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um, but Levi I found another one I think maybe you and I tried to pass this off as a relative Terry Leach. <laughs> And we have a fake Terry Leach autograph on it. Okay. <laughs> and also, for some reason, he's saying number one. So I think that, that we kind of blew it there. You know, like he's just like, there's like a word bubble and it says one. So I don't Usually know. if you autograph your own cards, you don't write I'm number one on it. You know? Yeah. And it looks yeah, like, you know, we did a really piss poor job with this if we were trying to pass it off as Terry Leach. We uh, took it to the to the B and J coin shop, and they're like, "Get out of here!" <laughs> Actually, yeah, it's, I'm looking at his totals here. Uh, he wasn't that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. looks like a, a side armor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm have to be on the lookout for like a late '80s Leech Mets jersey. He had a, yeah, there you right, go. huh? He had a pretty good year '87. <laughs> the pin strike straight games. Yeah. So uh, nice, but yeah. So I think we we that was a little bit of a botched counterfeit on it that's <laughs> good job. i like that though <laughs> yeah 89 donruss um was one of their better looking sets i think too with like the purple borders oh yeah another another kid yeah another one of his rookies and uh the diamond kings from that year 
If you go back and look at the 89 Diamond Kings, man, there's some studs in there. It's like yeah. full of Hall of Famers. Oh, except for the guys oh, I picked, Seitzer and Greenwell. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, right. did, is there an 89 Tops Griffey? Yes. Yeah, I have it. Yeah, it's uh, okay. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't see that one. As it much. wasn't it, like as soon as the upper deck dropped, everybody was like, "That's the one we want." Yeah, right. And then, so, and then people like some people went to the Fleer, and then also some people were about the Bowman, the Bowman rookie for Griffey. I've got that one. I, I don't. Think. Re- yeah, yeah. He's like solid blue. <laughs> like, right. Right. Um, oh, oh, we forgot this one though. That's 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 a class. This is a classic, the bow. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I got I got a Maybe few of those. Yeah, yeah. Good card. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where my Griffey is. I, I've I've said before here too. I I didn't bring any up with me, but um, I like score. I think it's the most underrated of of the big four. Uh, I thought they were I thought they were good looking cards. They were kind of like. They weren't quite as nice as Upper Decks, but they were nicer than Tops and Donruss, just in terms of the quality, the paper stock. And, and didn't they stay um, cheap, though? They were relatively cheap? Yeah, they did. Yeah. They did. Yeah, they yeah. stayed relatively cheap. And they, they also had a photo on the back, too. You know? Yes, they I don't did. Know if, I, yeah. I don't know how much influence, like, I don't know if, like, they set a blueprint that, that Upper Decks sort of mimicked a little bit. Okay, I uh, had to pull it up to see. Uh, 89 was the year the score where all the cards have, like, that little baseball diamond down by their name. Right, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, the little outline. They're good-looking cards. They were they were never, like, over the top with the design. You know how, like, like you know, the 1990 tops are hideous. D- the Donruss, like, Donruss kind of overdid it a little bit on borders and stuff a few years, you know. Mm-hmm. Fleer... Fleer always had stripes, and they never really looked that great. But I always, yeah. I always thought, I always thought scores were, were good looking. Every, every year, they don't have like a bad year of design. No, you know, ninety scores. Day. I had a bunch of those. I got they a ton of ninety scores. Good. I had a wax box of those. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. So I, I'll, I'll transition here a little bit because um, we got a lot of ground to cover still. So. Yeah, yeah, we do. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> kind of hope everybody enjoyed that half an hour of upper deck talk there. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, I know there's a few of you out there that do. Um, I, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get into the season of, of 1989 now, the baseball season, uh, beyond cards. And, um, you know, for me, uh, I've just got a couple of reflections I want to share 89 before I, I hand it over to you guys. But um, in 89, uh, you know, the White Sox were really bad. Um, they were, you know, a last place team. Things were starting to percolate for the White Sox in the minor leagues because you had Frank Thomas and Robin Ventura and Jack Mc... Well, Jack McDowell, I think, was might have been up already, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, but you, you had, you know, the minor league system was really strong, but those guys hadn't come up to the big leagues yet. So, the, you know, the White Sox sucked. And it, 89 was like my my flirtation with other, other teams. Whoa. Um, yeah, much to my grandfather's chagrin. Um, I bought an A's uh, mesh cap, right? Because I was like, you know, I mean, when your team sucks, you know, the A's are sexy, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, they got, look at all, look yeah. at the A's lineup, you know, we're going to talk about it a little bit later. It's a, it's an all-star at every position practically, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I, I was so drawn to Conseco and I also had a Kansas City mesh hat Whoa. too, Whoa. because I was, I was infatuated with Bo Jackson, sure. you know, I mean, when you've got the White Sox and the best you're, you, we can do is like. You know, Ivan Calderon, right? I mean, obviously we had Fisk and Baines, but it was just, it was a bad team. We won like 69 games that year, and, you know, the White Sox were pretty bad in the late 80s. Uh, fortunately, picked up after that. 
But, you know, you were if you were a kid and you were impressionable, you know, I mean, I was going to be drawn to the other teams in the AL West. And, you know, the A's finished first that year and the Royals finished second. And they had two of the hottest players on the planet, you know, Mm -hmm. Canseco and Bo. So, uh, you know, that was my that was my my brief flirtation with other teams. Um, I didn't wear those hats like after that year, you know, Um, but uh, and my grandfather, I I remember I walked in and he looked pissed, you know, like he tried to to pass it off as like, (laughs) you may as well have had like a cigarette dangling out of your mouth. (laughs) But yeah, he looked upset. You know, I was like, so what do you think of the A's hat? He said, I hate West coast. (laughs) (laughs) They're That's ruining awesome. the game. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, their California style of baseball, but um, which, which in that for the A's that year was you know winning all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. So between them, so and yeah, LA. and then yeah. you know the Royals were pretty good that year too. You know they yeah. um, that was probably like one of their better teams after '85. Yeah, it was a very good team. They were just they finished. You know they were in the same division as Oakland, and they didn't have a yeah, shot. Right? Right. Yeah. If you had the wild card system then, you know, they would have been in the playoffs, sure. you know. Sure. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey Gabe, you did get you did uh draft uh Frank Thomas that year, no? Right, yeah, yeah, I I think so. I, I can't remember if it was that year we drafted him, because uh, he came up in ninety. Yeah, I think he draft he was number seven overall. Okay. Um that year. And everybody before him was not good. Yeah. <laughs> ben yeah, McDonald was Auburn, number one overall. Big Auburn guy. Him and Bo, both Auburn guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, you know, that year, I remember my grandfather telling me, too, like, you know, the White Sox stink right now, but wait, you know, because Ventura was still in the minors then. I think McDowell was maybe in the minors or he hadn't he hadn't totally that he might have been going back and forth a little bit. And then, you know, we had Big Frank, obviously. So uh, so things were going to get better. But uh, for a year there, I just uh, I, uh, I had to it's funny. I had to go to greener pastures for a little <laughs> while. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that was my that was my '89 reflection. I even had a, I had the Canseco shirt too with like the cartoon. Oh right, yeah, know, the, yeah. The, the, the the caricature big head. Yeah, I was. All, and there's a picture of me somewhere where I've I've got that cap on and the Canseco shirt. I'm all I'm all A's decked out. <laughs> I appreciate you confessing this. Yeah, I got to actually see them play that year too because I went to the White Sox game. We took like a family trip to Chicago and to the old Comiskey and uh, got to see the A's and the White Sox. Oh, sweet. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's a point in everybody's youth, though, where they're kind of more fans of of players sometimes. Yeah, than sure. Are. You know sure. what I mean? Especially like, now. That's how yeah. I ended up with, like, a giant binder full of Cal Ripken Jr. cards. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And I was, like, a born and bred Cubs fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, 89 was a tough year for the Cubs, but it was a fun year. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, they were called the boys of Zimmer because Don yeah. Zimmer uh, came in and kind of turned them around some. It didn't hurt that they had two guys that were the rookie of the year and the runner up for rookie of the year and uh-huh. and Jerome Walton and Dwight Smith. Um, one of the weird things that happened that season that gets overlooked a lot was that Mitch Williams was traded for Rafael Palmero. We we traded Rafael Palmero to get Mitch Williams. So it was to the Rangers then, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, 
it, it's just interesting, you know, to think kind of what could have been if Palmero had stayed on the Cubs. But um, yeah, I remember the, that '89 uh, Rafael Palmero. Actually, the '89 tops Rafael. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, I mean, they started really good the Cubs that year, and then they kind of like fell from first to like third or fourth place, and then um. There was a game uh, I always remember where Mark Grace got beamed and then he charged the pitcher and got in two or three pretty good hits and then he separated his shoulder. And mm. so he, he was out for a while that year because of that. But we ended up getting to the playoffs and um, we ended up having to play San Francisco. And the first game, they just, like, kicked our butt. Like, the game was basically over in the first inning. Um, Maddox was your ace, right? Yeah, but we also had, uh, that year, we had three pitchers that had 16 wins. Sutcliffe, Bilecki, and Maddox. Oh, okay. Yeah, Mike Bilecki, right? Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, he he got a Diamond King in 1990 because Mm -hmm. of his performance in 89. And, uh... So, I mean, we had pitching, but um, so in, you know, game one, they won. Game two, we kind of did the same thing to them. We scored six runs in the first inning of game two, and so we put that game away. And then the next three games, because it's best of five, um, the Cubs managed to out-hit them every game and then still lose. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which was like heartbreaking as a kid, uh, you know. I would have yeah, been, that's 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 pure like Cubs lock right there. Old. Yeah, it was like when you go back and look at the boxes now, you're like, oh, they out hit them by two that game. They out hit them by three or four that game. They out hit them by they out hit them the last game, game five. The Cubs had ten hits. The Giants had four, and the Cubs still lost. Yeah, Mark Grace went eleven for seventeen in that series. Damn. Although Will yeah. Clark went 13 for 20. <laughs> no, and yeah, he was like the cub killer. I'll never forget that. After the, like cuz up until that point, like I had wheeled and dealed some 87 tops Will Clarks and shit. Mm-hmm. And like after that point it was like I'm burning my Will Clark cards. <laughs> <laughs> Maddox yeah. was awful that series. He was, he was. really bad. And, and what's crazy to think is that was the only series Mark Grace got to show off. You know what I mean? It was the only time I think he was in the wow. playoffs for the Cubs. Yeah. For the Cubs, at least. He was in there for Arizona yeah. later, right? Yeah. Yeah, he got, a, uh, he got a ring with Arizona. Did he? Pretty yeah. sure, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I believe so. Um, but your, yeah. your, boy, your boy Jerome Walton couldn't 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 string together a decent season after that. No, flash the pan. Yeah. Right, I mean, and I mean, we didn't get a ton of good seasons out of Dwight Smith either. No, no, yeah, yeah. The Cubs kept Walton around for about three more years, but um, and he stuck around the league until '98, but um, never, never again in what looks like a full-time role. Yeah, Yeah. so, so yeah, man. that was tough. Yeah, sorry. Will Clark, Cubs killer. I only had to wait till 2016 after that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but really, I mean, how do you think they would have fared against Oakland? Honestly, they would have got their butts kicked. <laughs> that I, would have been tough, man. No, I would yeah, like they would have the doubt, but I, I don't think so. Yeah, it would have been hard. They would have done the same thing they did to the Giants to the Cubs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean that ace Jonathan get into it now. I mean that, that ace team's just was just stacked. It was. Yeah, yeah. And let's, let's we can give them their due now. Yeah, yeah, so you know, obviously eighty eight the the A's make it to the World Series and, and lose in very dramatic fashion to the Dodgers. Um but uh for eighty nine they uh they retooled a little bit and uh they signed a former number one overall draft pick in Mike Moore. Um, who right. uh, was a pitcher for the Seattle Mariners um, uh, of note. Uh, numbers two and three in that draft, Joe Carter and Springfield's own Dick Schofield uh, for that. Well, Schofield uh, was drafted that high. Okay. Number high. three, yeah. I didn't know that. Schofield yeah. was number three oh. overall. Well, um, he, he had been, he, he was coming from like a baseball pedigree family. Yeah. Sure. His, yeah. His, yep. What was his dad or his grandpa? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that was a very good draft. The top 10 picks in that 19, I think it was 1981 draft. Um, like five of them were, ended up being very good, which is usually three more baseball, than what you yeah, usually right. get. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Was um, the Joe Carter, the Cubs? Cause I know he was on the Cubs right at the start of his career. Ooh. Um, here I can tell you. I wasn't, I don't know if they drafted him or if they got him in a trade. Um, it was, let's see. Uh, yeah, it was the Cubs uh, drafted him number one over or number two overall, and then um, yeah, Dick Schofield only by the Angels. Like another, like I don't even know if they gave him three seasons. <laughs> um, the other really good players in the top ten that uh, that draft were uh, Kevin McReynolds and uh, Ron Darling. Uh, good, a couple and, good Mets there. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, Mike Moore, number one overall, uh, but he was mostly pretty bad for the Mariners for his first five years, uh, with with the exception of one pretty good season. Um, and then uh, in the off season of uh, 88, 89, uh, yeah, the uh, the A's signed him to a free agent contract. And in 89, for the world champion ace, he went on to be their best player, according to Baseball Reference War. Um, he went 19-11 and 11 with a 2.61 ERA and 240 innings. And it was literally the best season of his career. Uh, and uh, he finished third in the Cy Young voting that year, and he was an all-star. He even got some MVP votes. And so it was a gamble on Oakland's part to sign him because even though he was the number one overall, he wasn't he wasn't that good up to that point. So um, uh, then the uh, uh, this uh, the second sneaky move, the second sneaky signing two days later in that offseason by Oakland uh, was a guy who ended up only having a, a few dozen at bats for them before being sent down to the minors, and that was one Billy Bean. Who, oh, yeah. uh, who who they had signed, uh, former, I believe, number one overall. And when they wanted to send him down to the minors, he said, I can't do this again. Why don't you why don't you give me a job as a scout, as an advanced scout? And that was the beginning of Billy Bean's career in the uh, front office of the A's, mm-hmm. uh, and which ultimately led to him being a GM and then leading them to uh, many playoff appearances under what was dubbed Moneyball. Yeah, and it gave us Brad Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, 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 was, I had to look up the Cy Young. That was uh, that was the year Saberhagen got his second Cy Young. Saberhagen that year was, according to Baseball Reference War, he was the best player in all of baseball that year with nine twenty three wins. Yeah. yeah, he was he was really really good. I'm looking at the numbers. I, I don't want to, to 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 digress here much, but um, 
if like his win total was just a little bit higher, I mean, Saberhagen, you can make the case for the Hall of Fame for him. You know, I mean, like it. it he he didn't I mean, have the consistency and the longevity. Right. Yeah, right. Um, that's that's the thing. Saberhagen was known to have the every other year syndrome, where yeah. he was really good in odd numbered years and not very good in even numbered years. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, he 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 had you know obviously two Cy Youngs. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a uh, there's not many Tim pitchers got two Cy Youngs yeah. and he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a small list of pitchers who have two Cy Youngs and don't make it into the Hall. So <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I had to look up Mike more because I I was kind of stumbled across this some of the same research jonathan and i uh i was like i kind of remember the name but it's such like a common kind of pedestrian name sure that like i'm like who is mike moore again and i i think maybe i like i had a couple of his cards when he was on the mariners um but he's just not you know i when i think of the 89 a's uh you know i think of dave stewart you know as the sure. ace yep um and then they had bob welch as well yep. um but but yeah, I I just I kind of forgot about him prior to this yeah. episode. Absolutely, yeah. Everybody thinks of Stewart and Welch and Eck um, right. from the bullpen, and but that that three headed monster of Stewart and Moore and Welch is is and Storm Davis was excellent that year as well. Right. Storm he was Storm Davis was nineteen to seven though he had kind of a balloon DRA, but um, damn. But yeah, yeah, they were they were tough. Um, also had a good uh, a good setup guy in Rick Honeycutt too. Yes. He, yeah, I mean he doesn't get yeah. the obviously he's not. As big of a name as those guys that you just mentioned, he's not a starter, but uh, he's he was he was a solid bullpen guy. Yeah, he was very good. He yeah, was very good. Um, yeah. uh, but halfway through that season, halfway through the nineteen eighty nine season, uh, the A's reacquired one Ricky Henderson. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, in a, in a trade with the Yankees uh, yeah. that involved uh, the other guy from Jose Canseco's rookie card, Eric Plunk. Um, <laughs> and I think like Luis Polonia, um, and, and, and Hendo was, uh, uh while he was kind of entering, it seemed like he was kind of entering the twilight of his career with the Yankees. When he rejoined the A's, he was rejuvenated and oh, he, he was tearing it up. Yeah. Um, no scrubs on that A's starting nine, man. You know? Steinbach, McGuire, Phillips, Gallego, Lansford. Ricky, Dave Henderson, Dave Parker. Walt Weiss. Yeah, Walt Weiss. Man. Yeah. Um, but Ricky won the 89 ALCS MVP. Um, he went 15 for 34 in the postseason with three triples, three home runs, 11 stolen bases, and nine walks. That's pretty good. Yeah, um. <laughs> but but you're right though, man. They they were only able to 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 pull off one World Series out of talent that good, you know. Yeah, like that that team's run was like 88 to 92. They had like they, they missed the playoffs in 91, and then they got back in 92. But that was, and then after that, that team kind of disbanded. You know, they traded Conseco to Texas and McGuire. But yeah, they they, they, yeah. they they were capable of winning the thing every year sure you know that they had the talent to win it they had the talent to win like five straight titles you know yeah um so in in some regards i guess they're kind of a disappointment um you know yeah i I would think that oakland fans probably feel that way that they only got one much like as as bears fans you only got one super bowl out of the 85 uh era team i'll talk about another another pitcher and this this guy's even i think a little more flukish than mike moore Guys, you guys know without looking who was the NL Cy Young winner in 89? Another guy with a very common name. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give me a team? Uh, San Diego. <laughs> it's not Chris Young. That was much later. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he right. meets you're the criteria. Like, you're right on the name. The name just being common. You know, yeah, it's a right. Jim Smith type name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it Ed Whitlock, was it? No, good guess, though. Good guess. Um, the, the Whitlock they had, I think, around then as well. Um, but no, it's... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, this is really kind of a flukish Cy Young season. Mark Davis. Oh, wow. Yeah. Who also, who also pitched for the Royals eventually. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dude, Mark Davis won the Cy Young that wow. year. Wow. Yeah. For the Padres. The Padres are pretty good that year. I mean, they didn't make the playoffs. But they were like a they were like a solid second place mm-hmm. team. Um, well, and what's crazy is right at the end, basically, I think it was at the end of the 89 season, the Padres traded – because Joe Carter had gotten onto the Padres at that oh, time. Right. right. They traded Joe Carter and Roberto Alomar got traded from the Padres to the Blue Jays for Tony Fernandez and um, Fred McGriff. That was a killer trade, man. That was a that was a blockbuster trade. Man. That's like a video that's, game. Yeah, trade. yeah, yeah. That's like that's what <laughs> it is. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'd forgotten that those that many big names were involved. I mean, those are four studs, man. Dude, yeah. dude, we would have spent we would have spent a good ninety minutes making that trade on a Friday night, you know, in like the sixth grade. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like working that out over Cheetos and and uh, some A and W. Oh man, definitely. Maybe, maybe a tombstone uh, thrown in there. But no, Davis was a closer. Um, so it was it was it was when they they award you know that. I don't know. I guess it, I don't know how often it happens, but they would they would they give the Cy Young to a closer. Yeah, yeah. Every now uh, and again. Yeah. yeah, he had had a. In all fairness, he had had a good year. The year before, he had twenty eight saves, two oh one ERA. But yeah, man, you want this guy closing out games in eighty nine? Man, he was had a one point eight five ERA, um, seventy appearances, forty four saves. Damn. His whip is 1.047. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Now he was he was able to put together and, and, and I don't o- know, over I, the course of it says he pitched 25 innings that year. And then or no, no, in the last month he pitched 25 innings. Oh damn. And in that last month of the season he inherited 19 runners and didn't allow one of them to wow. score. Wow. Wow. Badass. <laughs> Davis getting it done, man. Yeah. But yeah, and, and then the next year he goes to Kansas City. I don't know if that was like a contract year or what, because that wouldn't necessarily be a guy I would trade. Yeah, I don't know uh, the history on that. Yeah, I, it must have been. It, it must have been like a contract thing or something. Um, yeah. Yeah, like Kansas City's, yeah, it was, because like his salary jumped exponentially. Oh, okay. Next year on yeah. Kansas City. Yeah. And then he wasn't, he wasn't that good anymore. No. Yeah. Kansas City ponied up some cash for him for that time, you know. They, like he was, he was like, uh, he got paid. He was with the Royals for three years, then he went back to San Diego to close out his career oh, in '94. Wow. Yeah, because he 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 made six hundred grand for the Padres in '89, and then made two point one for KC the next wow. year, and wow. then three point six each the next two years. That's a big contract in the that's that's big money for a years. closer. Yeah. you know, yeah. twenty five thirty years yeah. ago. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Another stud that year, Kevin Mitchell, was oh, yeah. unbelievable. Oh, yeah. uh, 47 home catch, runs, man. 125 RBI. One barehanded outfield catch. Oh, one of the greatest catches of all time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah folks, if you've never seen that, it's a, 
it's a fly ball into left field, like tailing on him towards the foul line. Mm-hmm. She puts his hand up, his hand up, and he almost like catches it behind his head with his bare hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to look that up. Yeah, um, Mitchell is the NL MVP that year, and then American League MVP Robin Yount. Yeah, yeah, still getting it done. The old the old man still has it. Right? Yep. Yeah, I, I he would have. <laughs> gosh, yeah, because he would have been definitely that would. You know, he probably maybe only played for three, four more seasons after that. But, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I so, think uh, Yount played till like, 94. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Yount was very good. But but Mitchell, um, that was his that was the best season of his career, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. and, Yount was 33 in 89. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Played till he was 37 in 93. Yeah, so put together the 20. The thing that gets him is he, he came into the league when he was 18 in 1974. Wow. Oh, wow. And the, the thing about uh, Mitchell, too, was that he w- he won the home run title with 47 home runs. The next closest was Howard Johnson and Fred McGriff at 36. That's 11 more home runs than those dudes. <laughs> right. Yeah, man. I mean, to have a guy like... That's a huge margin. Flirting, flirting with 50 home runs then, too. You know, I mean, that... It was a down year for home runs that year. I was looking it up um, compared to the previous and, and following years, and it was a really down year. Right. It was a bad, bad batch of anabolics going around that year. Right. <laughs> Dead ball era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you guys, if you guys read up on Kevin Mitchell, um, I don't want to tarnish the glory, but he doesn't really seem like a great guy. No, I don't know if no, you guys have read. Yeah. There's yeah, several several arrests and yeah, yeah like yeah, d- domestic battery charges and things yeah. like that. So. I don't like to think of him beyond my '87 tops collection. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't no. exist to me beyond the cardboard. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, not so. going to buy that jersey. All right. So. Um, uh, but anyway, so to wrap up the uh, the baseball portion, do you guys remember watching the World Series when the earthquake happened? I do, I do remember that. I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I do uh, vaguely, but uh, I, I do. I don't yeah. remember who it was, but I remember a player like carrying either like a kid or yeah. Someone. There was a lot of family members that were sh- uh, shuffled onto the field after because yeah, it was like all the baseball's family members were in the stands, and then yeah. it was like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was like everybody game. was embracing yeah, on the field. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, Al, Al, Al Michaels like, I think we're having an earthquake. It's during the pregame. There's like a <laughs> um, a video um, oh, yeah. uh, recap going on of the previous two games, and Tim McCarver's blabbing about something, and and um, then the video cuts out, and it's just audio. It's really bad, like staticky audio of Al Michaels saying, "Oh, I don't know if we're still on the air, but if so, you know, we had an earthquake." But yeah, then they yeah they they uh, brought all those players' uh, families onto the field. Yeah, um, that that the series was delayed ten days. That's a big gap, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I remember the the news footage, you know, of like what like the the bridge collapsed, right? Yeah, Didn't the pancake or... uh, uh, double decker interstate or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I, I didn't. Before you mentioning that, though, I didn't know that the gap between games was that long. Yeah. Um, so that was the series would have extended into November, probably, right? Almost. It, did, it didn't okay. though because it was a sweep mainly. Oh right, yeah. right. Because okay. Oakland kicked their ass the first two games and kicked their ass the second two games. Right. Right. <laughs> so I'm not going to let an earthquake stop them. You know. <laughs> right. So. 
Yeah, that was also the year I, I mentioned it earlier, but kind of a, 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 a parting thought on on '89. Um, that was really the year of Bo Jackson as as a bona fide superstar too. Yep, hit you the know, home run in the All Star game. Won the yeah, won the All Star game MVP. You know, you had the you had the the Nike commercials starting to to come on. Eighty nine ninety. Um, I mean, he was he was you know he had had some good years. Eighty seven, eighty eight. He was pretty good. Like his, his he was certainly on the radar. Uh, but yeah, eighty nine. He really he really broke through. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't last. Well, then nineteen eighty nine was also the year of Tech Mobile. If we're talking, right? Oh, good Jackson. point. Good point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he was unstoppable. On it was a good. Day. It was a good time to be Bo, man. Right. Yeah. So. Um, well, yeah. Well, let's let's uh, good good stuff, guys. Uh, that's uh, you know, we'll we'll switch it over to our other our other uh, hemisphere now with uh, with with music in nineteen eighty nine. Um, a, a, a good year for music as as a uh, an often um, um, scrutinized decade comes to a close. You know, as we alluded to in the uh, in the introduction. Um, you know, some some. Jonathan, you know, talked about maybe some of these seminal records here that uh, that came out in in '89, and 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 I think some bands like, you know, uh, Nine Inch Nails' "Pretty Hate Machine," you know, was one um, that uh, is, is pretty ahead of its time, you know, uh, in, in terms of of just being, I think, uh, obviously you had Ministry and you had some other bands that were kind of flirting with that sound, um, and in some ways just just I guess ministry even probably laying the blueprint for it. Sure. But, um, but, but yeah, you know, um, pretty hate machine was not something I was personally listening to in 1989. Um, Oh no. I was, I was, I was more attuned to to dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich. Um, but, but pretty hate machine, probably, uh, you know, more important in the grand scheme of things. (laughs) Yeah. I tried to and spin the warrant. I tried to spin the warrant. I couldn't get more than halfway through it. Oh, come on. Yeah. Oh, man. Down Boys is a ripper, dude. Oh, I listened oh. to Down Boys. Yeah. That is a good, that's a good tune, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I always like the album cover too, that caricature kind of guy with yeah. the cigar and the, yeah. 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 Smoking but yeah, the no, there was some, you know, um, yeah, pretty hate machine. Um, you know, Bleach obviously was, uh, you know, Nirvana hadn't broken through yet, but um, I think probably in the cool kids circles, they were starting to get some buzz before before MTV found out. Um, and then, you know, we've talked about it before, but the self-titled Stone Roses record, um, quite, a, quite a landmark LP. Um, yeah. Which so, was their debut as well, right? Which was their debut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and that, again, that was another one that, like, like I was listening to the Stone Record, Stone Roses, when I was in, in fourth, fifth grade. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We can't lay claim to any of these, right? Right. Age. Yeah, yeah. Bleach, Pretty Hate Machine, Stone Roses. You know, like probably, you know, the 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 really three really critically acclaimed albums that year. Yeah. No, I was. Yeah. I was yeah. all warmed that year. <laughs> I wasn't like, Mom, bring me home the new Jesus and Mary Chain, please. Right. No, really. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, one one album that touched a lot of our lives, and um, I remember I was introduced to this record by um, a friend of my sister's who was 10 years older than me, and she's like, you got to hear this album, it's these two guys, 
And the name of this record is called Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Girl, you know it's true. And I'm like, okay. So they put it on, and I'm like, this is pretty cool. I can dig this. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, at the time, it was like kind of soulful R and B, like mm-hmm. easy to easy to groove to kind of tunes. And it's like, like more the, accessible, Terrence Trent Darby. You know right, what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah, like totally. But but like the soul of it was still there. Sure. Yeah. And so yeah, they went on to sell like seven million copies of this record, and so. Um, one of the first times Millie Vanilli, who was the faces of Millie Vanilli, was a guy named uh, Rob Pilatus and another guy named Fab Morvan. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the first times they went to MTV to do an interview after they left, everyone at MTV was like, there's no way those dudes could have been the guys who sang on the record. Whoa. They knew Because right away. I guess like their English was so bad because they're from Germany. And All right. so, oh, and so, like, that was, like, one of the first ever, like, kind of, like, hmm, something might not be right kind of things. Hmm. And so, yeah, um, the whole album was recorded by a bunch of studio musicians, and a producer was directing all of this. And um, it, it, it became, like, basically the biggest music scandal in, like, decades, you know? never had an album ever sold that many copies and then automatically get deleted out of catalogs like like it was like they stopped selling it oh they pulled did they like pull it from stores and stuff oh i didn't know that and then also they had won a grammy for best new artist in 1999 right and the grammy they revoked it it was the first time that had ever happened. Huh. Shit, I didn't know the penalties were that harsh. I, I mean, I, 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 get, I get revoking the Grammy, but pulling it from shelves seems a little extreme. Right? Like, I mean, and... so the people really into him, do you, like, like, a lot of people, like, in the top 40 probably didn't give a shit, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, and yeah. So, yeah, like, the real voices on it were these guys named John Davis, Charles Shaw, and Brad Howell. And then there was like nine other backup singers, women and men, sure. who who were like used and put on it. And so um, I, I just remember, though, before it all came crashing down, I really, really liked that tape. I had it on, <laughs> I had it on tape. And I, yeah, you see, you know. Baby, yeah. don't forget my number, number. Girl, you know it's true. Yeah. Girl. Oh, it on the rain. It was like my introduction into like soulful ballads. They were, on, yeah, they, they, uh, I think they were on the Cosby show on one episode too. I they think. have been. Yeah. Did they, the, so did the studio, did the, the session musicians ever like get together to record a follow up just under their own they name? Did, like, okay, so what's funny is those guys got together and tried to kind of record something and become famous and it didn't happen. Yeah. Sure. And then Rob and Fab were like, we're going to try and teach ourselves English and how to <laughs> sing better. And they put out an album and it didn't sell well either. So like it, it came crashing down, and it didn't work out for anybody involved. It would have been nice then if they just like got back together and did it like they did the first time and tried that again. <laughs> but obviously, this, this ends more tragically than that. <laughs> so that was yeah, I, that was a pretty big record for me in 1989. And then another record that it seemed like you couldn't escape in 1989 was Don Henley's "End of the Innocence," which was yeah. his biggest. 
up to that time, and I think it still holds it. It was his biggest selling solo record ever, mm. and the, which is a unique thing for Don Henley because up until like that point, you know, once he had left the Eagles and gone solo, he had um, you know the record with Dirty Laundry, which is like eighty three, eighty four, somewhere in there. And then yeah. he had he had building the perfect beast, and then right. he had end of the innocence, and then after that, I think he made like two records in thirty years. Yeah, so yeah, no, it he, was he, like he had he had the highest like most selling record of his career, and then he decided to like not make a record for like twelve years after it. Made, he, he had plenty of loot, I guess. You know, no, I mean, right. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. got some of his biggest hits: "Into the Innocence," "Heart of the Matter," "Last Worthless Evening." It's all contemporary adult, like dad rock. You know oh, what I mean? Definitely. But um, there's some really neat performances that not a lot of people know about. Bruce Hornsby plays piano on on the record. Mm. Um, Axl Rose sings backup on the song "I Will Not Go Quietly." Hmm, no shit. Yeah. Um, Mike Campbell has some parts on there that he plays. Jeff Picaro from Toto. Mm-hmm. Um, backup singers, three ladies that you've probably heard of, Cheryl Crow, Edie Burkell, and Melissa Etheridge. Jesus. So, yeah, the, the, the record was, like, engineered to be to be. Well, Don amazing. Hilly's got an Oakland A's there in the studio. With <laughs> yeah, no right. kidding. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that was another one, and I remember the, you know, the, the videos for those songs were on all the time, especially "Into the Innocence" and "Last Worthless Evening." It seemed like you could hardly escape those videos. Um, the other two records that I heard a lot that year was Aerosmith "Pump," and part of this was because my dad was on a softball team. He would, he would like sometimes play, but a lot of the times he would coach third base. And this is like a JC softball league where, you know, everybody's getting drunk before and after the games probably. And, but like when pump hit, like all the guys on the team were probably like 15 to 20 years younger than my dad. Cause mm-hmm. he was like, you know, one of the old coaches and it was like, everyone had pump. Like I remember guys were in like pump, t-shirts with the with the two trucks on each other right i remember going to the tavern after the games and stuff and people would be playing love in an elevator and jamie's got a gun and you know take me to the other side what it takes um it was like that record i couldn't escape that one either which Mm -hmm. you know it's I, I know you're probably I don't think you're a big fan of that record game, are you? In in the Aerosmith, you know, Pantheon, it's probably not oh, their best studio um, album. I don't mind the know, other but, side, but um, yeah, I mean, I I uh, I always like what, what it I'm, takes. Yeah, I it's not what really what I'm drawn to. I I didn't get no, a no. chance. I didn't get a chance to list to revisit it for this episode. I wish I I could have, but uh, no, there was just a lot of records I wasn't able so to get to. to. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's hard to top you know, Toys in the Attic and Rocks. Plus, I think this was at a point in their career where they were trying to, like, live a little bit of a different lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So I think it was easier for them to play music like this, where it was less less like drugs and rock and roll and more like social issues. Sure. Or... I, I, I think I like Pump better than Permanent Vacation. I'll say oh, yeah. I would say that, yeah. Yeah. Um, permanent, yeah, it's uh, it's a little... Like you said, it's it's got some more serious themes in it, you know, um, darker songs, so to speak, as well. Um, but anyway, 
Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it was a good time to be Aerosmith, man. You know, I mean, they were they were in uh, in act two, you know. Another um, band that kind of hit their second act the same year was a band called the B 52. Oh, yeah, yeah, and they had a huge record that year called Cosmic Thing, produced mm-hmm. by Niall Rogers from Cheek Fame, and mm-hmm. uh, the younger kids know him as Pharrell's buddy. And, uh, <laughs> also, uh, Don Waz, I think, produced that as well. <laughs> some of it um and so you know i remember the video for love shack being on all the time when it first came out and um probably the first time i ever saw drag queen because rupaul it was one of the first appearances of rupaul ever is the video for love shack oh yeah um you know it was kind of like it was their first top 10 hit ever yeah yeah it was huge album that kind of like i'm not I don't know if I'm going to, I don't want to say the word career saving because it's like their career was in dire. Yeah, they were going to do their thing regardless. But like, yeah, but like it, it was like an album that brought them back, kind of like it did Aerosmith with Pump. And, um, yeah. Well, also, you know, they're different audiences. You know, I mean, they were prior to the Cosmic Thing, you know, they were, you know, they were, you could lump them in with like the Talking Heads, you know. Right, I mean, more new wave for sure. Right. You know, whereas, I mean, obviously then Cosmic Thing put them, you know, they're, they're, they're MTV stars after that. Right. Well, and Rome, I remember that single specifically because oh, yeah. it, it may have been one of the first times in my life like I'd ever heard someone say, it's okay to just roam around and do whatever you know what i mean as a you know as a child you're told by everyone and all you know authority figures a a certain way to live and act and stuff and i always thought that song was kind of neat you know because it was probably my first my first introduction into there's a life beyond what people are telling me sure yeah good stuff i I do have a question gabe do you remember in, in high school or i'm sorry middle school um a a band came to the middle school to play Love Shack. Yeah, it was. We, uh, we gathered uh, in the was, gymnasium. It was, it was high school students, though. That's what I thought. It was high school students. Yeah. Who uh, was De- it? De- Denise's sister, Deanna. I'm sorry, everybody, for if we have any <laughs> audience members not from Petersburg, Illinois, that is like what? But just this um, idea that like a bunch of middle schoolers would sit there and hear Love Shack of all songs played to them live yeah. during during in the middle of the day in the gymnasium. Right. Yeah, yeah, there was like a high Everybody school... Everybody stop class, we've got to go listen to Love Shack. High, yeah, I remember that. Dude. High school kids uh, had a band, and they came to our middle school. Yeah, I, re- I remember that, and they did Love Shack, yeah. yeah. It's, I, I, I want like a 30 for 30 that, that gets into how this happened. <laughs> yeah, right, right, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, Mr. Conklin, Mr. Conklin was pulling some strings, man. I tell you. Um, but but yeah, you know those those are all. I, I mentioned for me, you know the um, as I as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I wasn't listening to all the good albums in 1989. All right, like all of these albums that I kind of you know that I I, I came across in researching this episode, um, you know either I I arrived at those at a much later date, um, like the Stone Roses and. Bleach and well, Bleach not that much later, but Pretty Hate Machine a little bit later. But um, you know, a, a couple of the records that um, that really I'll I'll share three like Levi did that's, that stand out to me. Um, two of them are, are more um, sort of more recent discoveries. Um, the first one is, and it's uh, Chris Ray, 
Um, he has an album. He's a British um, sort of bluesy dude who's uh, had an album um, come out that year um, uh, in in eighty nine um, with um, the uh, uh, gosh. I'm sorry. I'm drawing a blank here. On I've got the notes on on Chris Ray, and then forgot um, the Welcome to Hell, uh, or the Road, Road to, to Hell. hell. Excuse me, Road to Hell. The Road to me. Hell. Yeah, sorry that about that, guys. It. They're brain brain fart there. Um, but um, but you know, yeah, this this album, you know, it's um, it's 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 very um, very moody. You know, when I heard it, um, and I, I wasn't that familiar. I, I had somebody had suggested it um, actually on the Black Crows message board. People were just talking about albums they got into recently, and I put in him, you know, in in, in the streaming service, and I, I'd heard of him before. I, I knew like he was kind of a under the radar, kind of somewhat critically acclaimed British musician. Uh, but then I heard this record and I'm like, geez, man, this is really good. You know, um, to me, it, and, and it definitely has the 80s production value to it. Um, I look at what Eric Clapton was doing around this time, which I think he had Journeyman come out that year. Right. I think so. Mm-hmm. In 89. This to me is kind of like a better version of what Eric Clapton was doing around this time, in my opinion. Um, it and and Clapton's always been you know, fond of American blues and also fond of kind of your Tulsa and Texas kind of music scenes. Um, whereas I think Chris Ray really, I think does a really, I don't know if authentic is the right word, but, um, he pays homage to, 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 to sort of, you know, American blues, um, without sort of pandering and, uh, not that, not, not that I don't like Clapton stuff, then but I, I to me I, I i like this record better than journeyman um i think it's like a better version of it and you know it's a little darker like the songs are kind of slow burns you know they start out kind of subtly and then you know the this texas song is just weird um it's got like some noirish qualities to it um and also the guy that um he gets compared to like the first guy i thought of and i had to look it up i'm like oh are they connected in some ways it reminds me of a, a mark knopfler record oh yeah Oh, it's got that vibe to it. Well, it turns out he worked with Knopfler's brother, right, David, sure. who was also in Dire Straits. So Chris Ray and David Knopfler have like have collaborated before. I don't know if Mark Knopfler and Chris Ray have, um, but yeah, definitely. Like I, I you know, you you could tell me it almost was Mark Knopfler if I didn't know if I didn't see the cover of the album. Um, and you know, this is one of those things that like shows you kind of, even though. Um, a lot of bands are popular in England and they're also popular in America. Um, this album uh, went to number one in the UK. The Road to Hell did. Right. Wow. And yeah. And then, you know, it, it didn't even crack the top 100 in the United States. Wow. So. Another one of our cousins on there, Kevin Leach on keyboards. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. So The Road to Hell, um, if you haven't heard it, check it out. Like I said, it is. Um, it's just kind of a, uh, it's a night album, definitely. Um, it's like, a, it's kind of like, you know, like a hitchhiking on a, a dark Texas highway, you know, at night. Yeah. Well, um, the 80s, the 80s were good for that type mm-hmm. of vibe, too. Like the kind of like the Red Rider slow burn. Yeah, vibe. yeah good, good comparison. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with Tom Cock. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what, you know what else? Uh, uh, it, it's a little poppier, but um, 
some of the kinks work from the mid 80s like sure. like living on a, like living on a thin line you know that almost sounds like it could be a song on this record sure um it's got a little bit of that vibe to it so yeah i was i was really knocked out um i uh if you haven't heard it yeah welcome sorry it took me it took me about 30 seconds to get the title right but uh yeah uh the road to hell i keep wanting to say welcome to hell but uh the road to hell um Really good record. I, hope, I don't know if you guys got a chance to spin it. But, I did. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was immediately hooked. Like you said, yeah. it's, it's got it's unmistakably '80s, but in all the best ways. Yeah, yeah. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, I don't have the. Uh, I don't have that record of his, but I have heard it before. I have a record of his from '88 called "New Light Through Old Windows." Okay. Yeah. Okay. Nice. I, I I've been meaning to check out his other stuff. I I think maybe. You know, because he was he he he, um, he did pretty well in in Britain. You know, and it was one of those things where he never really took off here. So you just you just don't hear people talking about him a lot um, over here. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm intrigued, and I definitely want to check out the rest of his catalog. And I think he's still around too. You know, um, so not sure how active he is, but um, yeah, great record. Um, really, really good stuff. Uh, the other one that I, I think I had heard it at the time when I was like, you know, fourth, fifth grade. Um, and I liked it, but like I thought that, you know, for me in 1989, these guys probably didn't sound enough like Poison. Um, um, a band uh, the cult, who's become one of my favorite bands in, in recent years, The Cult. Um, their album from that year, Sonic Temple from 89, is just a barn burner. Um you know, this is kind of their their evolution from sort of kind of gothic tinged rock, you know, like um, for, during previous LPs, and then uh, with Electric and um, and uh, and uh, Love. Uh, but Sonic Temple is really, you know, it's 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 certainly their it's their heaviest of of their first three records, and it really seems like it kind of gave birth to the cult of now you know um not that their their sound hasn't evolved or anything like that but they they still seem to be kind of working off this sonic temple blueprint. yeah and that's, like, and that's it okay solid, it solidified sense. their like hard rock direction i think so that's a good way to put it yeah it it, it definitely um set the tone for future releases and um you know this you watch the video for firewoman man this is this ian's just such a badass man <laughs> you know i mean he's got that like jet black long straight hair like the black cowboy hat you know um you know you had around 89 you know the black crows were about to to take off um you had guns and roses you had the cult um you know uh those were you know those that that people were getting out of that poison yeah the anti-hairspray thing yeah that that was kind of starting to build you know uh that we were getting out of that and sort of shaking it off um, and the cult, I think, was 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 part of that. Um, Love is is I think probably their best LP, but you know Sonic Temple is um, is right up there. I mean, all, you can't go wrong with their first three records, um, and even their I like their recent stuff too. But yeah, so that one really stands out to me as one I've discovered you know prior to this episode, but more so in recent years. And then lastly, um, you know I, I've mentioned them a couple times uh, during this episode already, but Warrant. Um, obviously not, uh, warrant record, not going to be confused for a Jesus and Mary chain record anytime soon. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, they were kind of one of, um, hair metal or glam metal 
um, it's kind of one of the final success stories of that genre, right? Because this is their debut record, right, at the end of the decade. Right. So 89, right? Um, first record, big album. You know, it's got like, you know, three big singles on it or so. And I, I think, like Jonathan said, he couldn't get through the whole record. Um, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's an exercise in patience at times. But the singles are all... I, I see why all those songs became monster singles. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, they had the ballad with Heaven. They had the up-tempo rocker with Down Boys. Um, and, and you know, they, they didn't they didn't wait long. They went right in, you know, afterwards. Somebody's going to capitalize on this. And then Cherry Pie came out the following year. Mm-hmm. And then it was over after that. You know, like, one year later, then you've got 10 and never mind. You know what I mean? Coming out um, yeah. a year after Cherry Pie. So I, I say this is warrant. More so is, you know, not that I'm in love with the album, although I, I do... I do think it's a fun record and I think I think that whole genre is a good time and I I um I think it uh you know I don't know somebody had to party you know somebody had to document it um it's no, it, it's, it's where interesting it's, though because yeah sorry I was just going to say no it's interesting because um you know they they were able to kind of come in and cash in on it right at the right, end. Right, right, near the end and of the, it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, they were selling millions of records, and then, like, two years later, they probably couldn't sell, like, 500,000 records. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the, uh, you know, like, in a matter of two years from where, like, Down Boys, and then go to, like, 1991, it's like, shit changed, man. <laughs> you know, I mean... Yep. Um, so I feel, and, and obviously with Janie Lane too, you know, it's a tragic story and, um, you know, who, who he, you know, um, died a few years ago and, and really was almost in some regards, kind of a victim of the success of that genre, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, I certainly, I, I feel for him. Um, you know, it's, it's formulaic, it's indicative of the time, but that also, that's also kind of what it makes it so enjoyable. Um, you know, the guy that produced that, um, if you go and look at his resume, this guy by the name of Bo Hill is the producer. And he's like, he was like your go-to guy if all your guitarists had like Jackson's and Ibanez's. Right? <laughs> um, like you called Bo Hill. He was like, he was like a poor man's Bob Rock, you know? I mean, um, so yeah. So Bo Hill is um, naturally the producer of Dirty Rotten, Filthy Stinking Rich. He may have produced Jerry Pie too, I'm not sure. But um, but yeah, it's warrant to me is a uh, just as as a, a document of the end of that era. You know, that was that was really one of the last big albums of that era. So uh, it's it's it just it just makes for an interesting part of the story to me. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So those, um, are, those, are, those are mine. That OK. Of- Okay, I, I've, I've got a couple I'll just skim over. Um, real quick, uh, uh, an album I, I discovered, oh, six or seven years ago, Peter Case's Blue Guitar is, uh, I think, one of probably the most important records, maybe, um, uh, of the 80s that ended up influencing bands I appreciate, especially Wilco. Um uh, Even kind of like pre... It, it was going on at the time of Uncle Tupelo, but... It was. Um, it seemed to influence Wilco more than Uncle Tupelo, um, and uh, highly recommend that. Uh, along with <clears throat> uh, uh, the Jesus and Mary Chain Automatic, I, I, I think is a really, really good record. Um, even though it was, it was kind of panned when it came out um, because of the use of, drum, of the drum machine and a bass synth. Mm-hmm. But 
uh, over time, I think it's grown on people a little bit more as as bands are given more uh, freedom to work with uh, electronic instruments. Um, and uh, but ultimately, I got kind of infatuated with a record by a band. Admittedly, I don't know a lot about, but everybody probably knows a little bit about them. Um, and that's XTC. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, do you say XTC or ecstasy? Uh, that's how little I know about them. Um, but uh, they released yeah, their... Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I only see it written. I don't know. Everybody, most people know them for the song Dear God, uh, which sure. which um, yeah, most people have heard. And But they released their 11th album uh, that year called Oranges and Lemons. And uh, it's it's a lot of you know pop rock, pretty jangly mm-hmm. and, and kind of psychedelic at the time, so a little bit retro. Great cover on that record. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. One of the best oh, of the 80s, for sure. <laughs> not, uh, honestly, not long ago, I found a copy, and I haven't had the nuts to open it. I found a sealed <laughs> cassette tape of that. Sweet. <laughs> it's the original sealed cassette of Oranges and Lemons. Dude, oh. yeah, hipster would pay a pretty penny for that. <laughs> right, um, <yeah. laughs> but so yeah, I'm still learning about him, and I just enjoyed the record, and I listened to it several times over the last month. And and Skylarking um, from '86 is excellent too. Yeah, I'm 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 excited to delve into the back catalog for sure. Mm. Um, uh, Mayor of Simpleton is is a single off there. Most people have probably heard, um, even if you don't know it by name. But um, what I was interested in learning was that. Uh, it was a inter- it was a series of events that that kind of led this band to create a genre of televised music that was uh, heretofore um, unknown, and and that was when they started to promote this album. They came over to the states from England, and uh, they they just brought some acoustic guitars to play at radio stations um, along I think the East Coast. And um, one day they showed it up at MTV and used these acoustic instruments uh, in lieu of the traditional electric instruments and um, recorded a set. And MTV enjoyed it so much that they decided to invite more bands to do such a thing that they eventually called Unplugged. And uh, uh, And this is in promotion for for Oranges and Lemons. That's my understanding. Um, And Levi, if you know any more about that, you... No, this is awesome. In. I'm gonna yeah. Have yeah, to yeah I didn't know that either. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, that, yeah, that's just what I learned. Um, uh, so, uh, and and it's my understanding too that Andy Partridge of uh, of XTC, uh, you know, he he uh, has some anxiety issues, and so I think that may have been the impetus behind the the more the subtler promotion of the record. And it was so successful this this method that they booked this. Um, you know, 6,000 seat hall in Paris and they were going to do this across Europe and, and he heard about that it was this huge venue and, he's, and he called the whole thing off. Um, and and they were they were bound to be able to tour off this format. And um, But there's a nice uh, Letterman appearance from that year. It was their first television appearance in about seven years. Uh, so I recommend checking that out on YouTube. But uh, it's it's a really good record. It's, you know, it's solid. It's 60 full minutes um, of mm-hmm. really great pop songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it's, it's definitely worth a couple spins. Yeah, I enjoyed listening to that one uh, in preparation for this episode. Definitely. I was more familiar with their, you know, their late 70s, early 80s stuff. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, a lot of fun. Good record. I, I you know, I'm... Um, did you have a couple more? I'm sorry. Uh, you... No, no, I'll leave it at that. Are you... oh, okay, all right. Um, I mean, there's 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 a lot of albums for this episode that I didn't get to, um, but I, I 
want to acknowledge this though before we before we wrap it up um it was another great year for hip-hop as well you know it wasn't um a, a few episodes ago we did 1988 and we talked about we focused a lot on hip-hop in that episode and it being kind of a vanguard year for hip-hop but you know I'd, I'd be remiss if i didn't mention you know um just acknowledge that that it was another this is really you're in the midst of hip-hop's golden era here um this is also pre pre MC hammer still, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, but you've got, you know, EPMDs unfinished business. You got big daddy Kane's uh, LP from that year. You've got uh, queen Latifah's debut album. Um, so yeah, it was jungle brothers. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really, really strong year for hip hop as well. Um, so yeah, I just, I wanted, I wanted to mention that, uh, because it, it, uh, it deserves mention. You know, there's a whole ton of, Quite a few good hip hop records that year. Not not many, not much music can make me blush, but EPMD uh, uh, <laughs> manages to get there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> on yeah, a regular right. basis. Right. <laughs> well, did you get a chance to listen to Two Shorts' record by any chance from, uh, from no, no. that year? I think I think you go beyond blushing. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Uh, well, anyway. But uh, but yeah, you know that was good. And there was also you know um, Levi. Maybe you can speak to this a little bit as well. Like you know there was it was. Country music, I, th- I think, was still pretty good, you know, around 89. Um, you know, yeah. you had the, the kind of, 89 favorite... was the introduction of Garth, I believe. I believe so, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I, I can hang with country up until about Kenny Chesney. That's kind of where I go, you know. Like, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm into about everything almost. And, you know, less so of the 80s and early 90s stuff. But I still can appreciate some of it. But, um <laughs> A great record that year. I mean, the Kentucky Headhunters' first album came out in 1989, and that's a that's a that's a really good record. Um, and also, I think I think Clint Belt Black's debut album from that year is really solid too. Killing time, yeah, 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 right. So uh, I I think it was, uh, and then also you had, yeah, I, I believe that was the year Keith Whitley died. Um, and I think his record right came on out, that too. I think yeah, I think his record came out right before. Um, right before he he died, but um, that's a really good, uh, you know, great album as well. You're so. right. Yeah, he passed away in May of that year. Yeah. So um, so yeah, I, uh, I I think there were some solid country records. Um, obviously, they have the, the the kind of the gloss that some '80s country has has to it. Um, but uh, I still think they're they're really enjoyable records before before things got really like too far too too glossy. You know, um, right? Yeah, five, it, it, with, with the advent of Garth, country yeah. music changed from that year on. Right. You know, becoming not that country music wasn't always kind of slick and corporate, but it became like just as slick and corporate as rock and roll, basically. At that point, hmm. yeah, they were they started doing in, in some ways. Country became bad rock and roll, you know, in some yeah. regards. Um, once Garth hit. Um, and, but yeah, so, so yeah, so some other genres that were, that were, that were putting out good work then as well. And then, you know, you had big pop albums that year we didn't get to as well. Like, you know, Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation, Madonna's Like a Prayer, probably the biggest album of the year, mm-hmm. I guess, um, which we didn't even talk about, but you know, those are stories you already know. Right, um, right. Just like Full so, Moon Fever. Like, we don't exactly. need to talk full about moon, Full Moon Fever. Right. Full Moon Fever. Uh, Paul's Boutique as well, you know, yeah. a groundbreaking LP for the Beastie Boys. And that could be a whole episode in itself. So, once again, folks, there's only so much time that we have. Um, and 
we enjoy spending it with you. We could talk about this stuff all night. Um, if you want to check out uh, episodes like this one where we do some field guides uh, as well as just really running the gamut with baseball and music, please visit rockchew.com. Uh, you can also you can find all of our episodes there. Uh, as well as other fun stuff. Uh, and then also follow us on social media. You can get us at Twitter and Instagram at Rock in Chew. That's N as in Nana Cherry. Uh, another good uh, good record from that from 1989 as well. Um, so so yeah, check us out there. Uh, follow us, uh, like us on Facebook. And also one other thing that would help us out a lot if you listen to us on one of your podcasting uh, podcasting app, whether it's you know, iTunes or Stitcher. Or, Spreaker, however you listen to, uh, however you get your chew, leave us a review. Uh, it would help us out a lot. So until next time, we'll see everybody later and uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the week. Take care. Peace.